Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Can you have a healthy baby without any prenatal care at all? Would you want to? Well, today we're going to talk about some of the things that pregnant women need to know to be safe and to have healthy children, and some great little proactive tips that they can consider to really make sure that their health and their future baby's health is as optimal as possible. Been a lot of flurry in the news recently about things like hepatitis and Zika and dengue and all sorts of different infections. And what should we do when preg- when women are pregnant? Do they need to worry about these things? What's the safest way to protect both themselves and their family? Well, today we have certified ni- nurse midwife from Kaiser Permanente, Connie Conover is here. She's coming back to The Body Show after a little hiatus. I think we had you on a few years ago, Connie. You did. And today we're going to be talking about prenatal care for women who want to have families. So, you know, you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. There is that TV show out there, didn't know I was pregnant until like eight or nine months. And surprisingly, it really can happen. So we're going to talk about what are the important things you have to consider when you want to have a baby and how can mom and dad and all the family help to support this future child. So thanks for joining me again, Connie. Welcome back to The Body Show. Thank you for having me. Now, off the top, I know we're going to have people worried about some simple things, and you've done some research for us. Let's just hit that one hard, fast. Hepatitis A. Hepatitis A. We've been getting a lot of phone calls about that. I am sure you have. So have I. (laughs) But my patients usually are over 18 and may not be pregnant. Some of them are, though. So what's, you know, it's out there. We're worried. It's foodborne. Cook your food, everyone. Wash your hands. But what do you do if you're pregnant? If you're pregnant and you have a known exposure, and currently there is an ice cream parlor out on the west side and a Taco Bell on the west side, then come in for an evaluation with your primary care physician, and they will evaluate you, draw labs, and consider either giving you a hepatitis A vaccine or an immunoglobulin. Is it dangerous to get a hep A vaccine when you're pregnant? No, it is not. So if you were worried and you decided, okay, maybe I'm not exposed, but I'm worried about it, you could go get vaccinated. At this point, they're not just vaccinating anyone with a passive concern or maybe I might have been exposed. High risk only. Correct. Okay. Hepatitis B. Hepatitis B vaccine is something that we test for at the first prenatal care visit. So if you're not immune... If you're not immune, um, actually, we don't check for the immunity at that time. We check to see whether they have an active or a past infection. Um, It is a safe vaccine to get during the pregnancy, but it's not something that we typically do um, during the pregnancy unless someone is a healthcare worker or starting High high risk. So really, it's an individualized discussion to find out where you are in the risk stratification. And certain people might be at higher risk depending on what their occupation is or what's going on in their lives, and certain people would not be. So don't freak out. If you think you've been exposed, talk to your doctor. You could get vaccinated, but if you're not in the high-risk category and you're a pregnant woman, don't go rushing to do stuff. Exactly. And for our families, hepatitis B is something that we do check for, and every once in a while we have a um, 
a pregnant woman who was born, say, outside of the United States and finds out that she had been exposed to hepatitis B often when she was born um, and as a carrier and didn't realize it. So that um, adds implications to the baby. When So when baby's born, baby will need to get vaccinated and immunoglobulins at the time of birth. So that mom will get extra special care if she uh, is a hepatitis B carrier. And for the last, I think it's been almost 10 years or so, hepatitis A and B have been on the children's immunization schedule. So if you have a child, you can check with your pediatrician and make sure that they've received their appropriate vaccines. But a lot of young kids have been immunized already. Correct. And um, some of the kids start their hepatitis B vaccine series before they even leave the hospital. So even right then and there. I remember I didn't get a hepatitis B shot till I entered medical school. So I know that this has been a more evolving recommendation because back when I was a kid, it wasn't recommended. I mean, I'm dating myself now in the early (laughs) 70s, but now it's actually standard of care. It is. And that started back in the late 1980s. So obviously I am older than the late 1980s. (laughs) Don't count. (laughs) I'll admit that. I can't can't hide that anymore, I'll tell you. There's no way around it. Okay, Zika. You know, pregnant women are told don't go to the Olympics if you're concerned or if you're pregnant or you're trying to get pregnant. How scared should we be of Zika? Right now, the CDC um, offers the best guidelines as far as for um, Zika and pregnancy. There currently is a world map that the CDC puts out. And if women are traveling to one of those countries that are considered high risk, we really recommend they do not go there at this time. Um, Or if they had traveled to one of those countries recently, or if their partner had been in one of those countries recently, because Zika now can be sexually transmitted, they've they've found out. So um, there are blood tests that are available. Um, There's ultrasounds that can screen for microcephaly, which is when the the baby's head is a little bit smaller. And that's what we've been seeing in the news as far as the biggest concern for moms. Now, I did hear that there was a report that said third trimester women, if they do get exposed, probably nowhere near as great of a risk as first and second trimester women. That's what I understand. But if that woman has that concern... um, Don't go there. Don't go there. Literally. If you're thinking of going to Rio, you got yourself some (laughs) Olympic tickets, find a non-pregnant friend of yours. They will love you for life. They will go on on your behalf. Enjoy the Olympics, and then you don't have to worry. Right. And the other thing that, that can be protective is, is um, DEET, 20%, which is a pretty high concentration, but they found that that can be protective if they feel that they do not want to give up their tickets to the Olympics. Okay. <laughs> Although, who knows? You who know, knows, I right. assume the Olympics is going to go right. off without a hitch, and I'm living in a fantasy world. We have more issues with uh, some of the families who have, um, or some of the women who have families in Tongan and Samoa, which are currently on the CDC list as, as far as concerns. So That would be true, because... Because they want to go home and right. yet... Or a family's maybe. ill. Yes. Now, yes. what about dengue? Because, you know, we haven't heard a lot about dengue recently. And that also has been something we have seen in the islands. It's also been in other places like Samoa and uh, Tonga. Do we have any concern about that or... Not so much. You know, I, it, I believe that dengue needs to be transmitted by a certain type of mosquito that we do not have on Oahu. I know there was more concerns probably back in December, um, earlier this year, in uh, on the Big Island. Um, and I'm not sure if I can speak to dengue and implications to pregnancy, but I know who I would ask. And that's one of our specialists or perinatologists who, whenever these great questions come up that can affect the baby or mom, they're, the, they're my go-to people. Well, and that's one of the things we want to talk about is this concept of having a team of people to take care Mm -hmm. of you. You are part of a very well-knit team. And on that team is yourself, a nurse practitioner, 
an OBGYN resident, a doctor or resident, mm-hmm. and also a perinatologist. Mm-hmm. So what is a perinatologist? And explain to me what that means. There are OB specialists. So any of the high-risk conditions present, they're, they're our go-to guys to help us craft a plan. They also review the ultrasounds. All of our moms see the perinatologist at least once, if not more, during the pregnancy, depending on their risk um, and decision-making that needs to be done if they have higher-risk complications. So what would be high-risk? Um, diabetes prior to the pregnancy is a big high risk. Um, epilepsy. Um, our higher risk categories are our moms who are over 35 um, at the time of delivery. Uh, hypertension we're seeing a lot of. Um, could be, It could be thyroid disorders. Um, so like a pre-existing medical condition that could potentially get worse or have implications for the baby, you would want to make sure that Everything was taken care of as best possible mm-hmm. prior to or even before delivery, but certainly during the pregnancy. Right, right. And that's where prenatal care comes in because if our women come in early, we can start teasing out any of the high-risk issues, whether it's previous uh, complications and previous pregnancies. There are things we want to know about because there is a chance that that could uh, happen again. So try to start teasing out any of those high-risk conditions and try to normalize or um, if it's a diabetes, trying to get their blood sugar in as good a control as possible during the pregnancy and definitely by delivery. And sometimes we can and sometimes we can't. It's, it's, you know, it's a moving target with uh, sugars because it really, it's not just what you eat, it's also your liver and it's this combination of what your body's doing and it certainly can make it very, very difficult. So let's talk about, let's just say that somebody out there finds out, okay, they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. What is the first thing that they should do? Probably make an appointment with their OBGYN or their midwife or their clinic um, once they have a positive pregnancy test at home. And they're often invited into the clinic. And at that point, we reconfirm that their test is positive and often ask them how many pregnancy tests they've done. And sometimes it ranges from one to six, depending on what Costco has on sale. Um, At that point, it's also sussing out of how do they feel about the pregnancy? Is this something they want to continue? Is it something that they they do not? Is this a surprise? Is it not? And trying to figure out where they are in that decision-making um, if they would like to continue the pregnancy, we order initial labs, checking their blood type, their blood count, checking for anemia, rubella. Um, we check for certain infections, urinary tract infections, HIV, syphilis, um, and certain population-based population screenings. Um, for example, for our Caucasian, um, our population with at least 25% Caucasian, we screen for cystic fibrosis. Our African-American, we screen for sickle cell um, anemia. And again, according to, um, to the, their background, we offer additional testings or not. So when should someone come in? You know, I'll have people call my office and say, I think I'm pregnant. It might be just two weeks. Should I go rush in to see my OBGYN? And I'm like, well, you can try. But, you know, often they're told, come in and see us in a couple of weeks. Is there an optimal time? How early is too early? Too early, right. So typically the pregnancy test that that you do at home can be positive about 10 to 14 days post-conception. So that would be right about the time that women are missing their periods if they have regular monthly periods. Um, And that's often when women are coming in because they want to be seen. Um, So we'll see them anywhere from four weeks to six weeks is probably a good time to establish uh, 
to kind of come in, confirm that it is a positive pregnancy test. Typically, um, we do a dating ultrasound between eight and 10 weeks, and that's kind of confirming that that baby is alive and we can see a heartbeat. We can't see a heartbeat on an ultrasound before six weeks. Um and then move forward from there. The other challenge with with how early is early is because during that first trimester, which is the first three months of pregnancy, there is also a higher risk of of miscarriage. So any type of bleeding, any type of abdominal pain really needs to be evaluated. And also on that that concern list would be um, the risk of ectopic pregnancy, which is when the pregnancy is outside of the uterus and possibly in the fallopian tubes. And that can be life-threatening to the mom. So really, about six weeks or so, that's when you want to sort of make your appointment to see your OB. They need to make sure the pregnancy, first of all, is still there. We call it mm-hmm. viable. Make mm-hmm. sure there's actually a pregnancy. Make sure it's in the right place. Mm-hmm. And then do some testing to make sure you're healthy. Correct. What happens when you miss that type of appointment? What if, you know, and you always hear these stories, right? Didn't know. I have a friend of mine, and she's probably <laughs> listening, and she has a niece who didn't know she was pregnant until she was like five months yeah. because she always had a regular cycle, so she never knew. She didn't really have any other signs or symptoms, and all of a sudden started having some belly pain, was like, what's this about? And the next thing you know, she finds out she's like five months pregnant. I'm like, I thought that was just on MTV. I didn't realize <laughs> that happens in real life, but it really does. It does. Not that often, but it really does, and they're real stories, and some people just didn't realize, or they're busy with other things, and um, you think, really? But it, it does. And so you're, when, when women are presenting into care much later in pregnancy, five, five months, six months, seven months, you're doing a lot of catch up. Um, and if there are any medical concerns as far as with the baby or with mom who might have high blood pressure, it's really kind of trying to catch up and, and kind of get mom in, 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 a, in a good situation. Or if there's any concerns for the baby, you're dealing with those issues a lot later in the pregnancy. Does it happen a lot? You said not that often. I don't see it a whole lot. I'm going to say a few times a year. Um, I see more regularly. Um, and again, I work at Kaiser. Women are insured, so they're not dealing with with uh, insurance issues. But we we often see women coming in um, in the f- the first trimester, the first twelve weeks, I and mean, some are later. But uh, and some who come in later are dealing more with insurance issues and establishing care. Well, and I would imagine if you've had five children, you kind of know the drill. You're sort of like, okay, I know I have until maybe week six to go in. I kind of know what's happening. I might know my risk factors, that kind of situation as well. Right. And so for some of our moms who um, are experienced moms and very experienced moms, there's there's certain key times when it's great to come in if they're going to limit their care. So early in the beginning of the pregnancy um, to kind of confirm due date, um, that those earliest ultrasounds that we do are our best um, dating as dating for the predicting due dates versus the ones that are done later during the pregnancy. Um, also evaluating labs and making sure there's no high-risk factors. Um, there's another ultrasound that we do when moms are between 18 and 20 um, weeks, which is about four and a half to five months, and that's when they do an ultrasound to really screen um, the baby and look for any type of concerns, whether it's heart issues, problems with the brain, counting fingers, counting toes. And that can be a very reassuring time for the moms, but it also can be a little bit concerning if if, if that's where um, there's any concerns on the ultrasound. And is that when they would be able to find out gender? That's, and that's a big question. Not as much. I'd say about um, I'm having more and more families who want the surprise. Uh, really? Um, and uh, just because I have someone else who um, had older kids, and the kids wanted to know, but mom and dad didn't want to know, so they got the envelope at the ultrasound and gave it to the kids, and they haven't spilled the beans yet. Yet. Um, there I don't know. Are, that would be a there, hard one. There are uh, the gender um, revealing parties that are we're seeing a little bit more. Sometimes they're, they're – um, 
putting the gender in a cake and having a baby shower and it's closing. At that time, I had someone who had two dogs and they uh, put a little um, balls around the, the dog's necks and they put the... Um, the gender inside, and so the dogs went to them, and they got to find out at home with the dogs. Families are extremely creative, and it's always a surprise. Well, it certainly sounds that, uh, you know, some of the things that people have gone to, the <laughs> lengths to which they've gone to announce <laughs> is pretty amazing. It is. All right, so you can present for prenatal care at any time up until delivery. Optimally, sooner is better, around four, six weeks. Even if you're five months, you're still welcomed. You could still go ahead and get whatever care level that you needed right? because that would still be something you need to do. Now, we mentioned that first appointment where you do some laboratory studies and you start looking at immunity. You mentioned you checked immunity to something like rubella. Why? Rubella is the fancy name for the German measles, and it's something that if uh, most most women have been immunized as a, as a child for that. Um, but if a woman... Uh, is infected with German measles in the early first trimester, that can cause severe um, birth defects. So if they're not immune, mm-hmm. do what you do we do? make them immune? We do, but not if, and it's, a, it's a vaccine that we don't offer during the pregnancy since it's a live one. So what we typically do is immunize the mom before she leaves the hospital after the delivery. And then hopefully enough of the family have been immunized. If you were to find somebody who maybe was not immune to rubella, mm-hmm. should there, would you want to make sure their kids and or their family members had been receiving the vaccine? Because that's, that's a really good question. And I don't think there's been any German measles here in Hawaii. I hope not. I don't think so. We haven't <laughs> seen any German measles. There's been the rather other measles right, that have come right, out, right. but not German measles. I think their risk is low. So I'm not sure that I would go beyond that. And the just, woman. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And just make sure when she leaves at the hospital. Do you check for regular measles? We don't. Okay. We don't. Because that was that concern a couple of years ago. There have been some outbreaks. The measles, mumps, rubella vaccination, which is given as a routine to Mm -hmm. young children, there are some parents who decide they don't want to have their child be immunized, in which case there has been an outbreak of measles. So Mm -hmm. there were some concerns about that. But as far as pregnant women, that is not something that is tested in their initial prenatal care. Correct. Correct. It wouldn't have any detrimental effects? Or maybe we just haven't looked for it. You know what? I would ask my very special perinatology friends right. about that. Yeah, because you never know. I mean, I would think right. we would look for both. But if there's no major consequences, maybe not. Right. Another thing that I ask about is the chicken pox. Ah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, and many of our women can remember when they had chicken pox. Some have no idea. So that's something that I check for on uh, in the initial prenatal labs because if they're if – they're, um, not immune. If they're not immune, that can be an issue. And if they are exposed during the chicken pox, that can, can cause, it can cause problems during the pregnancy. And so we can start them on antiviral medications. But I do know of in the past of some, some moms who have had some very major challenges with some very sick babies um, due to exposure to the chicken pox during the pregnancy. Now, since I think this has also been since the mid to early 90s that they've started giving varicella vaccination to young kids. Correct. That, you know, these days, depending on how old you are, you might have gotten the vaccine and never had chicken pox. Correct. In which case you're lucky and mm-hmm. you're also immune. Correct. So there are some age situations that might arise. Absolutely. That would lead some people to be more ex- more potentially exposed than others. But that's a the varicella vaccination is a live vaccine, so I guess you wouldn't give that during pregnancy either. That's another one, and that's a series of two. So we will offer it before they leave the hospital, or more often we catch that when we see them back for their post-delivery appointment, and we'll start that. We'll offer the vaccine series at that point, or the initial one, and then back in another month. Correct. 
All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. We are talking about how can you have healthy babies? We have certified nurse midwife Connie Conover from Kaiser Permanente, and she has been a wealth of information, hopefully helping to reassure people worried about certain infections. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what happens during some of those other appointments. And is it safe to take vitamins when you're pregnant? What is a healthy weight healthy weight gain, how much exercise is too much. We're going to talk a little bit about all of those questions and more. As always, we will take your phone call as well. You can join us, 941-3689, toll free from our neighbor islands, 1-877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. 50 years ago, Bobby Kennedy went to the South. Robert Kennedy went home that night uh, from Cleveland, Mississippi, and he told his children they had to do something, and he did something. I'm Kai Rizdal. Race, economic mobility, and the war on poverty half a century later. That's next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Invention and soul, that rare combination is what pianist Tommy James presents in an evening of Mostly Ellington in the Atherton Studio on July 30th, featuring the lesser-known works of Duke Ellington, his writing partner Billy Strayhorn, and HPR's magnificent Bosendorfer Concert Grand Piano. Tickets at hprtickets.org or at 955-8821 during business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today we are learning all about prenatal care because in order to create our next generation, we want to make sure they're healthy, and in order to do that, we have to make sure that moms and families are healthy as well. Now, today our guest is Connie Conover. She is a certified nurse midwife who is practicing as part of Kaiser Permanente's team of excellent prenatal care and obstetric and gynecologic care. And right before the break, we were talking a little bit about what happens during some prenatal visits and what are some of the potential viral exposures that you'd want to be concerned about. Now, as always, our show is your show. And if you've got a question, this is your chance to ask an expert. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 1-877-941-3689. Now... Connie, I want to talk a little bit about some of the concerns that people have about food and nutrition. You hear about certain things that women should eat. They shouldn't eat things with mercury. They should eat, you know, cooked food but not raw stuff. And there's there's all these different, you know, sort of old wives' tales. And what really is the best type of nutrition that people should, that women should focus on before they're pregnant, when they're pregnant, and if they have other family members, it's probably a healthy diet anyway. Okay. What are some of the some of the areas of focus? Um, coming, so even before you're pregnant, if you can get to the um, normal body mass index, which is a way that uh, is a calculation that we use to help figure out how much total weight gain you should um, achieve during the pregnancy. So the closer you are to the normal, the best is for you and baby coming into the pregnancy. 
Um, so that's one of the first things we do when women come in is, is determine with them what their body mass index is. And then according to that, recommendations for total weight gain. For our moms at a normal um, body mass index, which would be between 18 and 24, total weight gain is 25 to 35 pounds. For our moms who are a little overweight, that would be 26 to 29 body mass index. That would be 15 to 25 pounds. And for our moms that are a little bit fluffy who are body mass index over 30, you only need to gain between 11 and 20 pounds. You put that so politely. For our moms that are a little fluffy, you know, a lot of women out there are cheering you on right now. The fluffiness. All right. So there still could be some weight gain no matter what your body mass index is, but certainly not as much if you are already starting off a little bit heavier than might be recommended. Correct. Now, are there certain foods you can't eat? Great question, and this comes up all the time. Um, fish is probably one of the biggest uh, hot topics in, in can I eat it, can I not? And currently what we're recommending, and this makes a lot of our, our moms cry, is um, cooked fish is fine, but to avoid the sashimi and the pulky, and there's always a teardrop at that point. Um, the fish that's the best to eat are, are smaller fish, so salmon, anchovy, sardine, trout are great. It's the fish that with the higher mercury content that are more of a concern, lead can cause damage to baby's brain. And the four ones that we ask our women not to eat are swordfish, tilefish, king mackerel, and shark. So don't eat those, but you could actually eat salmon. Correct. And we're recommending... And cooked salmon. Cooked salmon is is, is perfect. Um, fish has an, is an excellent source of protein. We ask that our women get between two and three servings of fish a week. Serving size is probably about the size of a deck of cards. And so, you know, shrimp, Crabs, any any cooked. thought on that? As long as it's cooked. You cook them, you, you can eat them. You got it. All right. Any other foods that women shouldn't have? Great. Um, other things that, that women uh, have heard of more recently is something called listeriosis or listeria, and it is a bacterium that can grow in foods that go in that are in cold refrigerators. So we're hearing a little bit more about the lunch meats that are exposed. So if you want to go to Subway and you're dying for that ham and cheese, it's fine, but you need to have it cooked. You need to have it on the griddle till the cheese bubbles, and then you're okay. But the cold um, lunch meats, we ask that you avoid during the pregnancy. Other things are soft cheeses. Um, anything that has pasteurized is okay. That's the key thing that's going to kill any type of infection. So what's with the soft cheeses? Um, some of the soft cheeses were not pasteurized. And okay. increased risk of infection. That's why they're soft? I don't or know. just different cheeses? That's a great question. I think it's just different cheeses in a different way that they're prepared. Hmm, I don't know. So if you're talking about cheeses, you have to make sure it's cooked. So like pizza would be okay. The softer cheeses. So, uh, But anything that says pasteurized on your cheese, and most are that you get at Safeway. Or as long as it's pasteurized, that's going to decrease the risk of infection. And then you should be okay. You should be okay. Correct. Right. Now, what about foods that women should have more of? Great. Um, so... During the pregnancy, you're not really eating for two, even though a lot of people want to feed you. You're not really eating for two. You You don't get two desserts. You don't. Just sometime on birthdays. Um, So you only need another 300 calories a day, which is equal to like um, a half a sandwich or an apple and some peanut butter. 300 calories isn't a lot. And um, so that's kind of one of the first things, just touching base is is kind of how much. So when you're setting up a round plate, you're going to split it in, in half, and half of it is going to be fruits and veggies. Um, a qu- the, on the other side, a quarter of it is, can, can be your grains. Whole grains are the best. Any like the, uh, the whole wheat breads, the brown rice are definitely going to be your advantage, and the other is going to be your proteins, eggs, chicken, fish, um, beans, tofu. So really a wide variety. Correct. Now, 
What's the deal with folic acid? Folic acid um, helps the development of baby's brain and spinal column. And so uh, what the current recommendation is is that anyone who is in childbearing years, so from our young 14-year-olds or when you start getting your period technically, uh, up to our women in their 40s, is recommended to take a multivitamin once a day. In the multivitamins, they contain 400 micrograms of folic acid. And so in the someone might not be planning on getting pregnant, but pregnancies do happen, especially the unplanned ones. So this is kind of a kind of helps prevent that a, a birth defect. Um, green leafy vegetables and orange juice also are other food forms of folic acid. So you could get folic acid from orange juice. You can. And green leafy vegetables. And multivitamins, are there particular ones that women have to take or any multivitamin should contain enough? Any any should. And look on the back of your vitamin. and Take a look. Take a look. Look right. at folic acid. You're looking for 400? 400. Um, Micrograms. MCGs. Correct. Exactly. Little... Funny little U signal or <laughs> symbol or, or MCG is another way to look at now, it. Now, when you're pregnant, the, the dose goes up. So we uh, typically it's uh, 800 to 1,000. And you could get that from a prenatal vitamin or some Correct. sort. Correct. Correct. Okay. So if you were to do that, get the vitamins, really work on the food and the nutrition, work on healthy weights, making sure that, you know, should women ever lose weight when they're pregnant? Some do. Um, I have some women who have little weight gain. So back to losing weight. So that first trimester, those first 12 weeks can be extremely challenging for some women uh, to the point where they need IV hydration. Because of the um, nausea. the nausea and They call it morning sickness. Right. Night sickness. and All day sickness. And they're just um, bloody miserable. Um, So there's certain, uh, sometimes there's certain medications we can use. Uh, Sometimes women use like the C-band, sometimes low doses of vitamin B6 and Unisom, which is a sleep aid. That combination uh, can help. Um, but if women are throwing up and not able to keep things down, our biggest concern is dehydration. And so some of those women end up needing um, IV fluids, um, either at the emergency room or we can do it at the clinic, uh, along with different medications to settle their tummy. Um, and the more that we can settle their tummy, keep them at home, the better they're going to feel. A lot of times by about 14 weeks, about three and a half months, moms are feeling better and some are not. Um, so if someone has had a significant weight loss at that early pregnancy and then starts feeling better and has gained that back up, it's a little bit more assuring. But in some very extreme cases, if women are just not feeling better, they sometimes need IV lines that are, are a little bit more involved. And that's when we call in our specialist again. So you mentioned C-band. Mm-hmm. What is C-band? C-bands are the acupressure bands that um, some um, people use when they go out on, on a boat. So like if you're motion sick, you might have seen these. Exactly. There's a little area where it presses on a particular Correct. nerve that is supposed to help with nausea. And so it's sort of a non-pharmacologic way to get rid of there nausea. Are, there are. Other things are ginger. Um, I've heard of the lemonade and potato chip diet. I know there's some crack seed that's supposed to have a little salty sweet that some women swear by. So it's interesting of what women come in, what their auntie said or what they've used before. So as long as it's there's no risk to mom and baby and it works... Bottom line. Lemonade and potato chips. That's quite an interesting combination, I have to say. It's not what I would think of right now as bring on some potato chips and lemonade, but it's the sweet and this, the salty. There you go. It's that combination. Okay. Right. Now, what about some things that seem to be obvious but bear repeating? Smoking. Smoking, not a great thing for anyone pregnant or not. Um, exactly. It can also, if someone's trying to get pregnant and they're smoking, that can also cause a delay in, in uh, getting pregnant. Um, also, it increases your risk of prematurity, babies that don't grow as well, um, and increases the risk of SIDS once the baby's born. So 
But to the to the positive, the positive pregnancy test is often um, being pregnant really is encourages women to stop smoking, and and it's not uncommon that women um, smoke and then they have that positive pregnancy test and then they're done. And that's common. It's a good but motivator. It is. It's a great motivator. But some women, um, they just find that they can cut down but can't stop completely. Um, we sometimes do use the, the patch for those women, and it's better than them smoking. So that's a whole other discussion. But um, women really, they don't want to smoke. And... Um, if you do, there's help for you. There there's are. help rather than smoking all of those toxins in a cigarette. If you happen to use some other form of nicotine replacement, overall probably healthier mm, correct. if you have to do it. Correct. Now, you mentioned SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. How is has that a huge worry for women? Um, not as much these days. I think it's still around, and I still know of families that I've seen a year later that it happens. Um, and we don't know why it does, but we do know that, that uh, smoking at home can increase the risk of that. Alcohol. Alcohol. Um, alcohol, we recommend that women do not drink during the pregnancy at all. Uh, biggest risk is fetal alcohol syndrome, um, where babies have some uh, deformities and um, just never recover physically and also emotionally. Um, so we recommend that women do not drink at all during the pregnancy. We don't know how much um, can contribute to having a baby with some sort of um, some damage. Well, yeah, we can't really do trials on that. Correct. I mean, there's a lot of things we can't do when women are pregnant. And, you know, I know when I see women who are of childbearing age and they want to get pregnant, if they have high blood pressure, I say to them, okay, we need to use only certain medications. Mm -hmm. They're kind of these oldie but goodie medications for blood pressure like Aldumet or Labetalol, mm -hmm. things that we never use these days. But it's because we can't do a trial looking at blood pressure medicines and say to women, well, you're both pregnant. I'll give you this one and I'll give you this other one I don't know about. Let's see what happens. Let's mm -hmm. see whose kid is deformed. That is completely unethical. We are not going to do it. Right. So part of the trouble is that a lot of these questions that we come up with, we really have to go with information that we have either gleaned from years of experience or from studies that were done that did not put any people at risk because it's a you don't want to go ahead and give a woman any kind of, of medication or allow them to do something they think is safe, like alcohol, and not know how that truly is going to affect Correct. the baby. So right. just avoid it if you can. Right. And everyone wants a healthy baby. You know, and there's some there's some other studies that I've seen recently that have really tried the tied the emotional health of the mother to the potential future emotional health of the baby. And these are probably in their preliminary studies that they're looking at, but saying an extremely anxious and stressed mother mm -hmm. with all of the stress hormones coursing through her body, with all of the different catecholamines and all these different hormonal influences, that it could actually affect the baby as well. You know, a mom who is completely stressed, um, depressed, um, is not going to feel good. She's not going to eat well. She, baby will probably not grow as well. It's a major concern. So we have an amazing behavioral health team. So if we're able to identify that at, um, at an early pr part of the pregnancy, we'll really try to help her establish care. Um, for the stress, sometimes it's just counseling and support and how do we bring tie all those pieces together. Um, for some women, they are on medication because that's what they need uh, and that works for them. And whatever we can do to get her in as healthy a state physically and emotionally during the pregnancy, we really want to try to support. 
Now, when we talk about women who might be needing to take medication during their pregnancy, mm-hmm. we've got to think, how safe is it to take some of the antidepressants? Great uh, Great point. And um, I think there's a few antidepressants that are better studied than others. And so when a woman is at a point where we're, we're thinking that medications might be to her advantage, that's a decision. There's certain ones that we use, just kind of like the old... Uh, the, oldies but goodies exactly, blood pressure medicine. Exactly. There are some oldie but goodie medications exactly, that women could potentially use. Exactly. And so some women um, who are dealing with depression... Um, some actually go off their medication, and some women know that I can't do it. And so we really try to work with the behavioral health and psychiatry to figure out what's the best medication for her to keep her as safe as possible to get her through the pregnancy, and then also considering breastfeeding issues. Um, if it's someone that we know is at a high risk who lets us know that she does have a history of depression or has dealt with postpartum depression, we'll be better able to identify her and keep a closer tab on her, knowing that and checking in with her during the pregnancy specifically. How are you doing today? How is the depression? Are you still in a, in a safe place? Some of the basic questions that sometimes we don't necessarily think about on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about postpartum depression, that seems to be something that I think the medical community in the past may have under-recognized. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to see a lot of people coming out saying, I've had this, I've experienced it, they've written books about it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we hear things because celebrities go through it. Brooke Shields wrote a book and some (laughs) other people have experienced it and kind of shared their experiences with that. Are there any risk factors for that? Is there any way to know who might be at a greater risk of developing that? And if so, can any interventions help? Great. So... um history of depression, period, and then history of postpartum depression, if that was an isolated incident. Uh, and that's something we ask about when someone comes into prenatal care is any history of, po- of depression or postpartum depression. Um, and women share different things. And if it was, um, were they, on, were they um, on medication? Were they not? What helped? How did they get through that time period? Um, so knowing that just kind of gives us a heightened, heightened awareness that she might need some extra special care. When our moms come back in for their uh, postpartum delivery, which is typically about a month after baby is born, um, we have a, a questionnaire that kind of helps um, cue us in as to how um, mom's doing or not. And um, the higher the rating, the more risk she is for depression and postpartum depression. And, and if it's high, we deal with it at that moment. And, and some women can verbalize it and some women can't. And if it's high and they decline care or further follow-up at this point, I'll typically check in in a couple of weeks and see where they are. So there are some interventions that can take place. Absolutely, You can sometimes predict it based on the risk factors, having been depressed, having had this before. Mm-hmm. But even if it happens out of the blue, literally, you never thought it would happen and here you are. There are some things that can be done to Correct. keep you and the baby safe. Correct. Correct. Which is a really important point. I think a lot of women are afraid to admit that Mm -hmm. they might be having troubles. They assume, well, everybody else has babies and they're happy and they're delighted and everything's perfect. And yet, realistically, life isn't perfect. And it's a hard transition whether you're going from one to two, but sleepless nights, um, depending on what your support systems are, depending on your little ones. Some babies are just easy and have a very mild temperament, and others cry a lot. And depending on how your coping situations, uh, your skills are at that moment, um, it's a wide range. 
Well, and we're going to talk some more about a wide range of different topics. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what are some of the things women can do. Is exercise healthy? How much is okay? Are there certain activities that they should avoid? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with certified nurse midwife from Kaiser Permanente, Connie Conover, and she is really helping to educate some of the, and myth bust some of the things that we hear about that women shouldn't do, and also talk about some of the things that really we encourage women to do if they're trying to get pregnant, have healthy babies, and have a healthy family. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about this, and you can always join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Poor Nathan had virtually become his real name, so he showed up just to show he was game. His shirt had been ironed, his belt brightly buckled, a shine on his shoes, a well-turned-out buckle. Jilted. This week on Selector Shorts. From PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m., following Travel with Rick Steves. His debut album won six Hoku Awards and has recently released second is full of melee and memories of people and places he loves. On July 23rd in the Atherton studio, experience Hawaiian music played in the real new style by Hoku Zudemeister. Tickets at hprtickets.org or at 955-8821 during business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery, Kaiser Permanente, and Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. This is Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio live with certified nurse midwife Connie Conover, and we're here today discussing different ways that women can stay healthy when they're pregnant and throughout their pregnancy and delivery. Now, Connie has worked at Kaiser Permanente for the last how long? Six years. Six years. And prior to that, you were? At Kalihi Paloma Health Center and okay. attending births at Kapiolani for 11 years. Kapiolani as well. And Kalihi Paloma. So a lot of experience both in the Kaiser system and outside of the Kaiser system. And there's something unique that uh, I think is, is definitely worth mentioning. Kaiser has a rate of cesarean sections that is half of that of the nation. Now, a lot of times women get cesarean sections because there's something going on with the delivery and it's not progressing normally or the baby is in distress or there's a medical reason. And, you know, the American Academy of OBGYNs has looked periodically for the last couple of years and really tried to figure out, is there some reason, is there a lot of convenience C-sections that are being mm -hmm. done? Ones that may not be done for medical reasons, but are done for other sort of timing reasons mm -hmm. that... It, do put, actually, mother and baby potentially at risk. It is a surgical procedure. And Kaiser Permanente's rates here in Honolulu are some of the lowest in the nation. How is that? We're very proud of it. Our, our OBGYN department and our, our labor and delivery is set up a little differently. So nationwide, um, C-section, primary C-section rates um, are over 30%. And at Kaiser, we're at right about 15% for our primary C-section, so half of that. Um, our labor and delivery is set up a little bit differently. So at Kaiser, you see your 
midwife or your OB or a combination at your clinic. And then when you come to the hospital, instead of them stopping their clinic and coming over to deliver, we have a hospital system, which means that we do shifts. So typically every 12 hours, there is a new OBGYN midwife and sometimes medical resident there as your OB team, along with the nurses to take care of the mom. So you might not know who is actually going to be at the hospital to do your delivery, but every 12 hours you get fresh energy. Um, And you don't want me up. If I've been up or all night, you don't want me around at nine o'clock in the morning. You want that fresh team who's going to come in with fresh eyes, fresh energy to help get those moms through tough labors. And sometimes labors go easy and sometimes they don't. And um, the one advantage uh, with this type of system is that instead of having to get back to, to patients that are waiting in the clinic, we can let a mom take as long as she needs to work her way through labor and delivery. Um, and most of the time we have success and sometimes that moms still end up with a C-section, but at least they know that they've had that opportunity to, to try as much as they can. Now, I remember when I was in medical school, once a C-section, always a C-section. But that is not the case anymore. That is not the case anymore. The pendulum has swung the other way. So a lot of it depends on why she had the C-section and at what um, time during her pregnancy she had her C-section and the type of incision. So... Um, in a perfect world, we'd love to get that operative note from wherever she had the previous C-section, whether it's here on island or on the mainland, to find out whether um, the internal incision, which is on her uterus, whether it's horizontal, which would be a lower transverse incision, or whether it's up and down. The moms who have the up and down vertical incision, trying for a vaginal birth is not an option. It's just not safe. There's an increased risk of that scar opening up during time of delivery or during labor, and that's not That a, could be disastrous. That could be disastrous for everybody. Okay. So if mom has a lower transverse, which means that the cut is horizontal, then um, we try to figure out whether it's a safe option for her to try for a lower, for a, for a vaginal birth or trial of labor after cesarean section. Um, and it works. And it works a lot of the time. I think our rate is probably in the 70s, if not a little bit higher. We even have a few moms coming in um, who have had two previous C-sections and wanted to try for a vaginal birth and have been successful. If a woman is trying for a vaginal birth, in, in a perfect world, she comes in in active labor, so contracting a lot on her own. When we need, when we need to deal with inducing labor, um, that brings our risk up a little bit higher, and so that might be another discussion uh, at that time to figure out what her, safe op- her options are for a safe delivery. And inducing labor is when it started by the medical professionals. Right, when we kind of need to convince our body that it's time to have a baby. Um, the reason, and, and there's different medications that we use there's, depending on how open mom's cervix is or how flattened out it is. Um, and uh, there's different reasons for inducing labor. Sometimes it's when moms have gone a week or two beyond their due date. Sometimes it's for a medical condition where a baby's not growing as well or moms has diabetes or some sort of um, high blood pressure issues. So there's medically, indi- medically indicated inductions. And then you'd really want to make sure that if this was something you were doing, a vaginal birth, after a C-section, you really got to make sure it's a safe situation set up. Exactly, exactly. Does having a cesarean section or a vaginal birth change some of the recommendations post-delivery? So things like how long it's expected for recovery, um, ability to breastfeed, ability to exercise, get back on your feet. Are those things different for those two categories? They are. Well, cesarean section is major abdominal surgery, and so um, we... They are medically disabled for eight weeks for our uh, vaginal moms who have had vaginal birth at six weeks. Um, it's a, 
so back to the C-sections, it's moms can still breastfeed. Um, we have them eating and out of bed within a day, moving around. There's pain medication to help um, with the, the pain from, from the incision, but they really do an amazing job of recovering pretty well. So both situations, you will recover, maybe take a little longer with cesarean section, but it really won't affect breastfeeding status and should not affect other activities that you try and do once you get to that recovery point. Correct. So what if you, you know, what if you love to exercise and and you exercise throughout your pregnancy? Is it safe as you get towards your later trimesters to do your yoga, your running, your jogging, your whatever it is? And how soon can you get back to that after childbirth? You know, exercise is a fabulous thing to do during the pregnancy. We have our moms who have never exercised before and find out that they're pregnant. And so they start walking or swimming and, and Hawaii has great water around us. Um, And then we have our other women who used to exercise and then get pregnant and become exhausted and just stop completely and have high weight gains. And that's really not not the best. Um, We have our moms who are CrossFit warriors and who are going the entire time. And so they've got to keep themselves hydrated. They need to let their trainer know that they're pregnant. Um, As long as they can talk at the same time. I generally am comfortable if they've been exercising before the pregnancy. You don't want to start training for the Honolulu Marathon uh, at three months uh, when you're newly diagnosed so or when you're newly found out that you're pregnant. So um, I think it's a happy medium. But if women who are who have not exercised before, if they can get out for a good 30-minute walk about four times a week, that is fabulous. It'll also help increase your stamina for labor. That's hard work and, and also help with the weight. Now, I'm an internal medicine doc, so when women get pregnant, we don't really handle a lot of their issues. They usually go see their OBGYN or they see the specialist, the perinatologist. There's this old joke that, like, internal medicine docs treat pregnant women as, like, they have a disease because, honestly, I think we do. We're just scared. What can we do? What can we not? They often come in. They're sick. They have a cold. They have an infection, a sinus problem. What can we give them? What should we not? What do we do? Um... So, yeah, pregnant women get sinus infections also, along with everything else. Just like everybody else, right. (laughs) So, um, So if they, there are certain antibiotics that are, tend to be safer. Uh, for our pregnant moms than not. So if you have a mom that comes in and you're not quite sure what to give her, just call the OB and they'll help guide you. So for the woman, if she really feels like she needs an antibiotic, has tried the whole, it's not that bad, I don't have a fever, it hasn't been 10 days, two weeks, she could let this infection go, resolve on its own. Exactly. But if she were to get an antibiotic, there are ways to check to make sure it's safe. There are certain ones that are safer for pregnancy, correct. What about if they're going to the pharmacy and they're looking at the big aisle of all the different (laughs) over-the-counter treatments and all of them say, if you're pregnant, check with your doctor? Because nobody wants to be absolutely certain and say, yes, it's safe to take this. What sort of things could somebody pick up over the counter that would be okay? Would be okay. Like Tylenol okay? Tylenol tends to be okay. Um, We ask that moms avoid the Advil, the ibuprofens, and the aspirin, but Tylenol up to 1,000 milligrams for a headache or for a cold or for some aches are okay or fever. Um, Robitussin. Robitussin DM, one of my favorites. It's a cough expectorant. Um, And so that is fine during the pregnancy. Cough drops, making your own ginger tea from fresh ginger root, hydration, the neti pots are things that we use when we tend to get more in the cold season. How about Sudafed? Sudafed, that's that's, um, not an option. No go. I don't even think you can get that over the counter anymore. You can't actually. You have to get it from the pharmacist. <laughs> they changed that maybe about eight or nine years ago. Really tried to restrict it because too much Sudafed can cause some other serious problems and right. can be made into something else. So 
Yes, you'd have to get it from the pharmacist. Right. So you couldn't get it over the counter unless you got a pharmacist to agree. If you were there in the pharmacy, could you just ask a pharmacist, is this safe? I'm pregnant. Can I take this? They could probably help you out. They, they, I, I would imagine they can, um, or they might refer you back to your to OB, OB just to make sure that there's no risk involved. Yeah, because I think for a lot of people, you know, when I, I remember doing my OBGYN rotation, I do not want to admit how long ago. <laughs> but, you know, these days there's been a lot of change in what in what women are able to do when they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so all those restrictions that I remember from like 20-some years ago, don't listen to me at this point. You got to check with your OB. <laughs> they know the latest, greatest, up-to-date stuff. If you're on any chronic medications, you should definitely check to make sure they're safe to use as you go on with your pregnancy. When I think of chronic medications, I think of our um, our women with asthma um, who have inhalers or other sometimes are on a low-dose steroid. Um, our uh, women on thyroid medications, we have an amazing um, endocrinology department. So that's someone I tap into immediately, and they follow them throughout the pregnancy and, and alter their medication for thyroid issues. Um, again, high the, the hypertension, um, making sure that it's a medication that is compatible with their pregnancy. And things have changed in the world of diabetes with pregnancy, right, too. Right, right, right. It used to be only insulin. That was all you could do. There was no other pill. And then they've started looking at using some of the oral medications as potentially something you could use. What's the latest? We're not using, so the the oral medications, um, we use a little bit metformin and glyburide, but we we really don't use them a whole lot. Typically, if women are at the point um, who are either diabetic prior the pregnancy or diabetes uh, that has been discovered during the pregnancy, insulin is our first line. Um, and they get creative with the dosing and really try to control um, their blood sugars that way. Now, we have a few moms who say, I'm absolutely not going to take insulin. And so then we need to be, get creative as far as, well, how do we, how can we manage our blood um, sugars um, if they're absolutely refusing? It doesn't happen too often. All right. What are some of the most unusual things you've seen recently? Uh, Thrill me with tales of, you would never believe it, but... Um, a couple of years ago, there was a mom who it was her fifth baby, and you'd think by the fifth baby that that it would just be an easy delivery. And um, she worked hard, and so all the men were outside, and she was a member of a of a church. And at the very end, when mom was working real hard, um, some of her choir came in, and they surrounded her at her bed, and just started singing and praying. And all of a sudden, I hear. And she pushed that baby out in one push. Wow. And I think it was attributed to those wonderful prayers and song. There you go. All right. Singing in the delivery room. Now, for those men who want to be present for their wives' deliveries, (laughs) if you can't sing, that is so not the time to start breaking out into song there, gentlemen. Or for women who want to be present for their family members, friends, loved ones, Wives, baby delivery, do not start singing unless you know how. We don't have too much singing. We have very interesting music selection, especially with Pandora and people coming in. And, and some family like the classics. Some have their playlist with the Hawaiiana. And um, some have some really loud rock music that's something that I wouldn't choose but they're like that's what the babies listen to the entire time so creative selection it's always interesting to see what we're pushing to I pushed a rocky um, when it's two o'clock in the morning and we need some we need some energy here and I'm like (laughs) I had a tiger we need that we'll take it and it it does it wow all right youngest woman you've ever delivered Um, a 12 year old 12. 12. Um, and it was not a consensual pregnancy, but she was 12 and I was 41 and pregnant with my second. Wow. So we were on the two continuums. 
You were. Okay. Oldest woman you've ever delivered. Mm, I'm going to say 45. 40s are the new 30s in in pregnancy care these days. We're seeing a lot more women, spontaneous pregnancies. Um, when you think of the older um, women, you think of uh, more often infertility. But we've had of, of, it's not uncommon to see spontaneous pregnancies in the 40s these days. You never know. You never know. I love the idea that 40s are the new 30s. I'd like to say that for everything. <laughs> not just pregnancy, but everything. <laughs> Because obviously I'm in that uh, that group of folks, but uh, okay. So so there really is a huge age spectrum. Correct. And women handle pregnancy and delivery differently. They do, and it really is about making the experience unique, making it tailored to and personalized for the woman who is pregnant and her future offspring, her future baby. Right. And her family. This and is all about family. her. It's safe mom, safe baby, and all the other components. And sometimes during labor, it's just the the father of the baby and the mom. And sometimes we have 25, 35 people in there who are, are the cheerleaders. And so when they're the cheerleaders, it's good. Um, but sometimes that many people can be um, a little... How do you have enough space for all those people? You don't. People? And sometimes we need to, to disappoint people and say... You can't For safety issues. The football team Yeah, here. yeah. Top four. Top okay. four or even less. Because in case of emergency, we need to be able to move mom down the hallway, get her to the emergency operating room if needed. And if that is the case, if you're in the process of trying to help a woman deliver and it's decided she needs a C-section, mm-hmm. it's not like it takes an hour for this to happen. Once that decision is made, it's actually pretty quick. A lot of it depends. So um, if mom has been in labor for a while and her cervix is just not opening up and she's kind of stuck and baby's still doing fine and she needs a C-section, that's something that we can be a little bit you more... You can be more flexible, sure. Exactly, exactly. Um, but sometimes more if, if baby is intolerant of labor, and baby's not happy, it needs to happen now. And we need to get mom back to the OR, back to the OR quick to get baby out. And that can happen less than 10 minutes. Less, absolutely. It's definitely reassuring for women to know that if something goes in the direction that they're hopeful that it wouldn't, that really emergency backup is right there. Right. And you know, with labor, no matter how prepared you are during the pregnancy and how much you prepare with childbirth classes or breathing or with taking good care of yourself, Adventures happen during labor and delivery, and we just never know what it's going to be. I um, like that. Adventures uh, happen during labor and delivery. <laughs> that is a nice way to put unexpected, amazing complications happen during labor and delivery, and nobody prepared for that. So the great thing about where I am now is that if I'm in a, in a pushing with a mom and all of a sudden baby is intolerant, I can say, go get Dr. So-and-so. They are there in a nanosecond right there. If... Um, Babies, so we're getting close to delivery, and we need doctor's assistance, and um, we need. To, we can also call our uh, neonatology or our pediatric crew, and they are there in a second for high risk pregnancy. We have all hands on. If mom gets real sick, we have intensive care right there also. So really, it's a team approach. It is. Everybody's available. They're available 24-7 in labor and delivery Correct. so that any woman who is at that point where they're getting ready to deliver can be rest assured that there are the right team members available. Even if they may not know who they are, the team knows one another and can really work well as a team to make sure this all progresses as best as possible, right. hopefully for an amazingly healthy baby. That's our plan. I love my job. That's, and that's <laughs> another thing to know is that if you can say after you've been at work all day today doing deliveries, I love my job, 
You know you're in the right place, and women are lucky to have you help them through this transition. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. We will have to have you on a third time. <laughs> As I volunteer you and, you and you smile. Okay. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also follow the links to The Body Show and find us on Facebook as well. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kosovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Thanks to Connie Conover from Kaiser Permanente. We'll see you next week. We're right here on The Body Show. Thank you.